0: Bienvenue, and welcome back to the Land of Desire. I'm your host, Diana, and most of this script was written over the course of a gloomy, rainy weekend here in San Francisco. As always, the arrival of rain in the Bay Area has only one appropriate response. Ah, but we need the rain. And it's true, California is basically always in a fluctuating state of drought, and this year is particularly bad. I say this to explain that I have climate shift on the brain right now, and all of my recent reading has been focusing on the relationship between humans and cities and weather. This month, as I sit around waiting to see whether April showers will turn into May flowers, I'd like to do a prequel episode, if you will. If you've been a listener of The Land of Desire from the start, or if you've taken a dig through the archives, you might remember that the debut episode of this podcast centers around a volcanic explosion which kicked off a series of bread riots in France, acting as a sort of kindling for the French Revolution. But today, let's ask a follow-up question why didn't that volcano trigger bread riots in Britain or other countries in Europe? Or to put it another way, we associate the French Revolution with an uprising of millions of French peasants. Well, it was almost the 19th century. Why on earth did France still have millions of peasants? So today, we're going to take a closer look at a dreadful century when France was out of date. Yes, that's right. France was behind the times. It was out of fashion. As the rest of the West underwent this agricultural revolution, the French kept their ancient farming practices, no matter what the cost. One of the greatest revolutions in French history did not take place in Paris or even at Versailles, but rather it was out in the sticks, where wheat, the so-called staff of life, gave way to new crops and a whole new way of life. In this episode, let us appreciate one of the great changemakers of French history, the potato. And six years thou shalt sow thy land, and shalt gather in the fruits thereof. But the seventh year thou shalt let it rest, and lie still, that the poor of thy people may eat, and what they leave the beasts of the field shall eat. This passage from the book of Exodus perfectly captures the shmita or the Sabbath year of the ancient world, in which farmers would spend an entire year letting their fields just sit fallow as the soil rested and recovered. Though ancient farmers wouldn't necessarily have known why at the time, the chemistry checks out. Cereal grains, like wheat and rye, are what we call scavenger plants. Their roots dig down, down, down into the soil, gobbling up nutrients and incorporating those nutrients into the stems and the leaves, thus producing a very nutritious crop with enough vitamins and minerals to sustain, oh, I don't know, the entire human race. But scavenging the soil comes at a cost. Planting cereal grains in the same dirt year after year eventually leaches those nutrients, especially nitrogen, out of the soil. Things will eventually stop growing very well. Giving the farm a break, a sabbatical, if you will, lets those biblical farms recover and it keeps the soil from eroding. There's just one problem. What do you do during, you know, the year without any food? The impracticality of going a year without any harvest led to the development of the two-field system, in which a farm was split in half. One field would be planted with crops, while the other one took a break, sat empty. The next year, the fields would swap places. This system worked okay, which is why it probably persisted for thousands of years, but like a Gillette executive innovating razor blades, you've always got to ask yourself, what if we added another one? So around the year 800, French farmers gave it a shot, and their new idea took feudal Europe by storm. Under the new system, you needed, you guessed it, three fields. In the spring, you would plant beans or oats in your first field, and then in the fall you would plant wheat or whatever your cereal grain was in your second field. The third field would lay fallow, just chilling out. Beans are nitrogen fixers. They speed up the process of introducing nutrients back into the soil. So the land doesn't just recover, it's basically bursting with fertility after you're done harvesting all those beans. Meanwhile, the third field is still sitting around fallow, and your cattle can graze on the weeds and contribute some free manure into the process. The three-field system, it was a big improvement. Most obviously, you only had one-third of your land sitting around doing nothing at a given moment instead of one-half you now had two harvests each year instead of one. Better yet, one of those harvests, the the beans or the oats, that was a cash crop. You could sell the beans to buy more food to live on during winter. Finally, the most successful farmers were able to raise livestock, let them chew on that fallow field for a while. It was definitely an improvement over the Sabbath year. But over the 2,000 years that the three-field system was in place, things in human society started to get complicated. The need for food often took second place after the need for power, and the three-field system in its most common form, the open field system, became this Byzantine arrangement which had less to do with keeping everyone fed than it did with keeping everyone compliant. The three-field system was just productive enough to keep Europeans from starving. Until, of course, it wasn't. Feudalism is just a big daisy chain of power. At the top, you've got God, and God bestows the crown on the king. The king bestows land onto his favorite lords, And the lords then divided their vast tracts of land into tiny strips, which they rented out to local tenants. Here, this is your strip in the first field, this is your strip in the second field, and this is your strip in the third field. It's a bit like renting a parking space at your apartment building and renting another parking space by your house. You probably don't need to be using both of those spaces at the same time but you definitely want access to each of them when their turn comes up. Tenant farmers spent a lot of time walking back and forth between their little strips. The tenants had actual legal rights to farm their little strips, and as long as they had rent money for their lord, their lord didn't really care how you farmed it. The system prized stability over everything else. A lord could not evict you or replace you, and you weren't allowed to go somewhere else to work or try your hand at something that wasn't farming. This was the system practiced by most of the European continent for centuries on end, from Charlemagne through the Renaissance. Whether you were farming in Normandy, or East Anglia, or the banks of the Elbe River, you were farming your little strips on somebody else's land until you died. Unfortunately, dying happened sooner rather than later for millions of Europeans. Life in the three-field system was, to put it simply, precarious, Crop yields were not very high, which meant you basically didn't have much of a buffer. If you planted 10 wheat seeds, on average you'd get 40 wheat seeds when you harvested, which was just enough for you to save half for next fall to plant again, and eat the other half to stay alive during winter. If you had a bad wheat harvest, you could use the cash from your beans. But what if you had a year of bad beans and bad wheat? God help you. That was the answer. No food for winter and no cash to buy more. Farmers frequently found themselves making an agonizing choice about whether to eat the wheat grain that they were trying to save for next year's crop. Yeah, you would need those grains to plant, but what was the point of saving them if you weren't going to be alive to plant them? Basically, everybody lived on the subsistence line, and one run of bad luck was enough to doom an entire village. And in 1315, everyone's luck ran out. Seven weeks after Easter, the rains began. It rained most marvelously, and for so long, one witness observed early on but the shine wore off soon as the rains continued. Day after day, and then week after week, those precious spring cash crops drowned under the weight of all of that water. Anxious, the tenant farmers of feudal Europe turned to their fall crops, which would have to be gangbusters if they were all going to make it through the year. But it was just more bad news, September 1315 was freezing cold and rainy, and that harvest got trampled into the mud just like the one in spring. A whole year of farming. Wasted. Most people assumed they'd been cursed by God, and no wonder. Even the French king, Louis X, on the eve of battle outside Flanders, found himself turning around before all of his horses got stuck in the mud. Usually, when a village suffered a bad harvest, well connected families compensated by networking with friends and family in other villages to scrape through. But what happens when everyone's harvests fail at the same time? Worse yet, what if it happens again the next year? 1316 was just as wet as 1315, and two bad harvests in a row? that was enough to kill a continent. From Normandy to Norway, villages were filled with starving peasants. They began eating diseased cattle. They died on the side of the road. Unable to find nutritious food, humans ate questionable substances, and they died of malnutrition and disease. As desperate workers migrated in search of food, entire villages just got abandoned. In 1316, the entire grape harvest of France failed. It wouldn't recover for nearly a decade. Livestock, just as hungry as their humans, succumbed to pests and disease, taking with them the last source of nutrition. So across the nation, French churches led special services and parades, praying for good weather and food, but no luck. Europe's bad weather continued for seven years, and even after the famine ended, those who were lucky enough to survive it were forever weakened by the experience. When a mysterious plague arrived from Asia a few decades later, it found a frail, malnourished population, especially susceptible to disease, and the Black Death wiped out nearly one-third of Europe. While the 1300s had been a historic bummer, the 1400s proved to be another endless series of disasters. Between 1420 and 1450, peasants faced massive food shortages at least seven times, and that was just in Paris. Roughly every ten years, the crops failed, and bad winters and worse wars kept people hungry until the middle of the century, when the French population finally recovered enough to start repopulating the villages which had been devastated by the Black Plague. Yeah, that's right, a hundred years earlier. The good times lasted for a few decades before the return of cold winters spurred a panic across the country, reaching a climax in a series of witchcraft trials. Now, for most of the 16th century, England and France were both following the same patterns of the traditional three-field farming, which left the peasants existing at subsistence level At best, they were constantly vulnerable to the luck of the weather, no matter which side of the channel they were on. Then, in the 17th century, something changed in Britain. Within a hundred years, Britain would undergo the first of a series of agricultural revolutions, and a stubborn, starving France found herself stuck in the past. Ironically, This thousand-year cycle of feast, famine, and fallow fields came to an end in France, but the rest of the country didn't know it. In those same fields at Flanders, where Louis X had had to turn his horses around to escape all that mud in 1315, Flemish farmers were determined to figure out how can we break this endless grind of subsistence farming. Long before the Enlightenment, Flemish farmers began conducting experiments to see which crops fared better in their local soil, and their discoveries changed the way that humans farm for the first time in 2,000 years. How do you improve on a three-field system? Yes, that's right. Give the Gillette executive another raise because we're going to add another field say hello to the four-field system. It changed what Europeans grew and when they grew it. First, the people of Flanders ate their vegetables. Unlike the British and French, who stuck to a diet of beer and bread with perhaps the occasional onion for centuries after the discovery of the New World, Flemish farmers were open-minded about new varieties of vegetables and crops that were making their way across the Atlantic. Not only could the Flemish eat these crops, so could their livestock. How handy! Different countries had their fodder crop of choice, but the Flemish particularly loved the humble turnip, whose leafy greens fed the cattle and whose starchy bases fed the farmers. Second, Flemish farmers soon realized that certain kinds of grazing crops did just as good a job at restoring the soil as a season of sitting around doing nothing. For example, clover was particularly miraculous. Cows loved it, but so did dirt. Clover is very nitrogen-rich, and a field of wheat or rye planted where clover had been just a few minutes earlier is going to be gangbusters. So, by the 1600s, the Flemish had perfected this new system. Four fields, each one staggered but following the same sequence. Wheat, then animal fodder, then barley, then a grazing crop you'll notice there's something missing from that list. No more fallow fields. No more wasted land. Enough year-round crops to keep livestock happy and well-fed around the clock. For 2,000 years, autumn had meant it was time to slaughter most of your livestock because you couldn't afford to feed them all your precious wheat during the winter. Every harvest festival that features a big fat bird or haunch of beef, every Christmas feast, all of these things are legacies from this ancient tradition of killing your animals when it got cold. But for the first time, farmers could sustain all of their livestock over the course of the winter, feeding them on clover and hay during the warm months and turnips during the winter. Farmers had diversified their portfolio, so to speak. They were no longer doomed by a single bad harvest or a year of cheap wheat prices. As anyone who has ever played Stardew Valley knows all too well, keeping livestock unlocks the real moneymakers leather, cheese, milk, and more. Suddenly, Flemish farmers were squeezing incredible amounts of nutrition out of their land. Suddenly, Flemish farmers were living longer, healthier lives and making enough money to lift themselves out of subsistence. Starvation was no longer waiting just outside the gates. This was a milestone in human agriculture the landowners of Britain caught on relatively quickly. The landowners of France did not, and they would come to regret that. During the reign of Queen Elizabeth I, Londoners started seeing a new sight at the marketplace. Vegetables! a wave of dutch and flemish emigrants had brought with them all the techniques and the turnips that they had been perfecting over the past century as one witness recorded they were the first gardeners that came into these parts to plant cabbages and cauliflower and to sow turnips and carrots and parsnips to sow wraith and peas, all of which at that time were great rarities, we having few or none in England but what came from Holland and Flanders. So ignorant were we of gardening in those days. Queen Elizabeth herself was a huge fan of the newfangled treat called carrots. Nevertheless, it took many years for the farming techniques that these newcomers used to get adopted by their neighbors. Here's the thing about British lords of the 18th century. A lot of them really, genuinely loved farming. Read through any literature of the era, and the lords are always sitting around having long conversations in front of the fireplace about how to drain this marsh, and how to improve this harvest, and would you like to see the new chicken I've been breeding— British aristocrats loved stomping around on their land, finding improvements, and there was a booming trade in pamphlets and treatises about how to produce a more profitable farm. One of the first gentlemen to take note was the diplomat Charles Townsend, a viscount who retired in 1730 to spend the rest of his life focused on his real passion, farming. He'd served as an ambassador to The Hague at various points in his career, so he'd come into contact with all of those savvy farmers and their innovative techniques. Back on his farm, with too much time on his hands now, Townsend spent so much time promoting the new rotation strategy that the neighbors began calling him Turnip Townsend. After experimenting to see which of the Flemish crops would work best in British soil, Turnip Townsend eventually settled on the perfect four-crop rotation for his area. Wheat, barley, turnips, and clover. He was eccentric, but he got results. Townsend's farm had the output of lands far bigger than his. Slowly but surely, word spread, and between 1700 and 1900, as each enthusiastic landlord applied these techniques to his own property, the amount of good British farmland sitting around doing nothing went from 20% down to 4%. Turnips kept the weeds at bay and the cows ate their leaves. Clover healed the soil and fed the animals. Together, turnips and clover kept animals alive over winter, and the resulting milk, cheese, meat, leather, and manure meant British farmers were some of the most productive in the world. But all of this change came at a great cost. Transitioning from a three-field system to a four-field system was a big bet. It was an experiment. It was a risk. Individual tenant farmers struggling to survive on the margins could not afford to take any risks, so the British landowners did the unthinkable. They broke the social contract of feudalism. Some landowners bought the rights to the tiny strips of land off of their tenant farmers. Others simply appropriated it from them and dared the tenants to do something about it. Slowly, and then all at once, the communal fields in which everyone had been farming their strip of land or letting their cattle graze for thousands of years was snatched back by the landowners and consolidated, a process called enclosure. I'm not going to get into it because this is more British history than French, and because I promise I have not spent as much time thinking about enclosure as Karl Marx did. But I also just can't skip over it completely and just focus on the carrots. Enclosure was incredibly controversial, and it resulted in the creation of an enormous class of landless, rootless peasants who were completely unmoored from all of the social ties which had organized their lives. Millions of these peasants went on to labor in, spoiler alert, the factories of the Industrial Revolution, which was just around the corner. But nevertheless, as destructive and disruptive as the transition to enclosure was, there's no doubting the results. With the landowner able to coordinate the transition to a four-field system, British agriculture produced more food than ever before, and within a century or two, Britain's food system was almost entirely self-sufficient, and she was finally free of the endless cycle of subsistence farming. Across the channel, however, it was a blast from the past. In 1857, Jean-Francois Millet debuted a startling new painting entitled The Gleaners, depicting three peasant women bent over in a wheat field. It's familiar to any art history student, and it's now on display at the Musée d'Orsay. You've probably seen it before. The painting is most famous for its provocative ideas about class warfare and the rights of the poor. But take a moment, think about what this painting literally depicts. Gleaning is an ancient feudal custom in which the poor have the right to cross onto a tenant farmer's harvested field and dig for leftover scraps and roots. It's the ancient equivalent of dumpster diving, What on earth is ancient pre-modern dumpster diving doing in a painting from 1857? This is not a historical painting, and for all of the criticism it received at the time, the Gleaners was not accused of being an exaggeration. Forty years after the last great famine of England, the French peasantry still hovered on the brink of starvation, caught in the old cycle of subsistence farming. What happened? How did France fall so far behind? So we'll back up a little bit, back to the 1600s. While the landed gentry of the British countryside spent the 17th century gleefully planting turnips and breeding new types of chickens, French aristocrats were busy elbowing their way into the king's favor at Versailles. Louis XIV kept the rich on their toes at all times because aristocrats, who were busy gossiping about one another, eating 20-course meals, and shopping, 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 are too distracted to bother fomenting a rebellion. The land-owning classes in France spent more of their time away at court than they did back home tending the crops on their property. They didn't care what you grew or whether you grew anything at all, just so long as you had the money for rent. Enclosure? Sounds like a lot of paperwork, and we have 57 social events and a trip to Chambord coming up. With absentee landlords, unpredictable harvests, and zero margins, French farmers had no money to invest in upgraded equipment they continued to farm the exact same way their great-great-great-grandfathers did, and often using literally the exact same tools as their great-great-great-grandfathers to do so. The scythes and hand plows weren't the only thing that their ancestors would have recognized. Long after the Dutch had introduced Fifty Shades of Carrots and the British discovered the joys of mashed potatoes, the French continued to reject New World Crops. Nobody wanted to grow them, and nobody wanted to eat them. Potatoes were the first food Europeans had ever encountered which grew from an ugly little tuber instead of seeds. It was highly suspicious. In 1751, no less an authority than Diderot himself proclaimed, No matter how you prepare it, the potato root is tasteless and starchy. He went on to declare... It cannot be regarded as an enjoyable food, but it provides abundant, reasonably healthy food for men who want nothing but sustenance. But honestly, even this backhanded praise was sort of a PR coup for the potato, because the rest of the nation at the time thought the potato gave you leprosy. But sustenance was exactly what the French nation desperately needed, Even as Britain, the Netherlands, and the rest of Western Europe adopted new practices which enabled them to diversify their farms and improve their yields and, you know, break the wheel of starvation, France suffered from famine after famine. France suffered major famines in 1650 and then again in 1660. Instead of recognizing the nation's urgent need for agricultural reform, Louis XIV got distracted by his favorite pastime, fighting with the neighbors. He spent 30 straight years at war, draining the country's bank accounts and leaving the nation unable to buy any emergency reserves when the crops failed. And did they ever fail? In 1693, a stormy summer withered crops on the vine. Ten years later, a freezing winter forced everyone to eat what little reserves they had for next year's planting. In either case, malnutrition left everyone but the aristocracy completely vulnerable to disease, and millions of French farmers and peasants died from typhoid and dysentery. The famine of 1693 alone may have killed more French citizens than World War I. While courtiers at Versailles dined for hours on end, one-tenth of their countrymen perished. With their populations literally decimated by war and disease, French farming villages sat abandoned again, fallow as far as the eye could see. In 1715, the Sun King died. But a regime change was not enough to fix the situation. The French nobility did not wake up the day after the Sun King's funeral and begin caring about their tenant farmers and wheat yields. In the late 18th century, Arthur Young, a British agriculturist, toured the French countryside, and he couldn't believe what he found. Go to the districts where the properties are minutely divided, and you will see great distress, even misery, and probably very bad agriculture. Surrounded by peasants so poor they went without shoes, Young wrote, This is a poverty that strikes at the root of national prosperity. As long as the rent came in, the nobility didn't care what happened, and as luck would have it, for a while the rent did actually come in. Under Louis XV, the weather was nice for a while, and everything was great until suddenly it wasn't, and everything was horrible. In 1740, Paris suffered 75 straight days of frost. Everyone was sick, miserable, or frozen to death in their own homes. As melting frost flooded the fields, harvest dates got pushed back further and further, Famines were turning into a once-every-ten-year affair in France, at the exact moment that the rest of Europe was leaving them behind completely. France needed a wake-up call, and that call would come from an unlikely source, an unknown pharmacist named Antoine-Augustin Parmentier. At the moment Diderot published his observation that potatoes were only fit for men who were desperate for sustenance, Parmentier was that man. A prisoner of the Seven Years' War, locked up five times by the Prussian army, Parmentier spent most of the 1750s eating nothing but potatoes, literally nothing. Instead of finding himself riddled with leprosy, Parmentier emerged from the Prussian prison a picture of health. The humble, nutritious potato, Left Parmentier better nourished than most French people of the era. And from that moment on, Parmentier devoted the rest of his life to spreading the good news. He was a sort of French Johnny Potato Seed, and Parmentier toured the country, urging French people to give taters a try. As luck would have it, his services were needed by one man in particular, the hopeless, hapless King of France. Louis the Sixteenth. Guess who's back? That's right, it's your old friend, crop failure. Just like clockwork, bad harvests led to wheat shortages in 1773. Grain merchants began hoarding wheat, prices skyrocketed, and the new king adopted a laissez-faire approach. This time, however, the French people were no longer going to accept that hunger was an act of God. Instead, hundreds of riots broke out in 80 towns across the nation, and the so called Flower War spurred conspiracy theories that the king was starving the people. Here comes Parmentier. A few years earlier, he'd had a major breakthrough. Thanks to years of hard work lobbying them, the Paris Faculty of Medicine had made an official declaration potatoes were edible hey, it's a start. Parmentier published books and pamphlets pleading with the French to give potatoes a try. The vegetable kingdom affords no food more wholesome, more easily procured, or less expensive than the potato. Parmentier launched a series of PR stunts to rescue the good name of potatoes everywhere. He fed French nobility an all-potato dinner, 20 courses, he adorned the royals with delicate potato blossoms tucked into marie antoinette's hair threaded through the king's lapel according to one legend parmentier planted forty acres of potatoes and surrounded the plot with armed guards to convince french society of their value At one point, Parmentier served the American ambassador a meal so delightful, the ambassador saved the recipe and brought it back home. And in 1802, Thomas Jefferson would introduce Americans to their new best friend, the French fry. Unfortunately for King Louis, Parmentier was a man ahead of his time. Despite his best efforts, French society took another 20 years to fully embrace the potato. In the meantime, as I covered in this show's first episode, a volcanic explosion triggered yet another failed harvest. The general temper of the population is so highly charged, wrote one observer, it may well feel itself authorized to ease its poverty as soon as the harvest starts. Sure enough, by the 1790s, the flour supply was no longer the only thing in France that was getting cut off. Sure, the French Revolution toppled God and King, but that didn't mean it was enough to topple the most enduring institution of France, the Three-Field System. In one of its final acts, the National Assembly issued a ruling on the traditional Three-Field Farms of France. Essentially, do whatever you want. The creation of new common pastures was abolished, and landowners now had the right to enclose their lands like the British aristocracy. But communities who practiced traditional farming were free to continue their ancient practices. And boy, did they. Ten years after the revolution, the threat of famine was still so strong in the French imagination that French villages could actually force all of their able-bodied residents to drop what they were doing and collectively bring in the harvest. The reign of Napoleon Bonaparte overlaps almost perfectly with the coldest cold spell modern Europe ever did see. Each year was colder than the one before, leading up to April eleventh, 1815, when, <laughs> you guessed it, another massive volcanic eruption wreaked havoc around the world. The ash and smoke which filled the earth's atmosphere was so thick that 1816 is still known to this day as the year without a summer. Half of the French wheat crop died, and all of its wine grapes were lost. By the summer, the French began rioting. Police escorts guarded wagons of grain from hungry villagers. While Napoleon was shivering in his prison cell, rumors flew around the nation that he was staging a comeback, triggering more and more violence. Unlike previous crop failures, the French government couldn't even turn to other countries for help. Everyone was suffering the same fate at the same time. For one summer, the European continent found itself in a time machine, hurled back into the Middle Ages, facing down the same threat of continental famine as their ancestors had exactly 300 years before. As the historian John D. Post wrote in 1977, 1816 was the last great subsistence crisis in the Western world. Shaken by such a hungry year, slowly, very slowly, French farms began to change. Instead of the laissez-faire approach, which left farmers vulnerable and villagers hungry during the late 18th century, French policies actively incentivized smarter, more productive farming. Unlike the British, French governments didn't kick everyone off of the land and force them to change their ways. But they made it easier for farmers to justify taking the risk. Common pastures, fallow fields, they all continued all the way into the 20th century. But new policies encouraged the farmers to begin coordinating, synchronizing their little strips of land, devoting large territories of a field to one crop, even if that field belonged to 20 different farmers. Nobody would force you to plant the same thing as all of your neighbors in this big, synchronized rotation, but the neighbors would make it a lot harder for you if you didn't. If you planted your tiny strips of land using the same rotation, the same crop as your neighbors, you would be allowed to walk around wherever you liked, and you could step on your neighbor's strips of land to get to your own. On the other hand, if you went rogue and you planted whatever you wanted... You had to go the long way to reach your different strips of land, as though your neighbor's tiny strips were made out of hot lava. Plus, it's a hell of a lot easier to turn a plow around if you don't have to keep it inside the confines of an itty-bitty plot of land. Over time, the combination of these incentives resulted in more and more common fields transitioning to a modern rotation, and central to that rotation the humble potato. In 1825, the celebrated food critic, Briat Savarin, published The Physiology of Taste, in which he declared, I appreciate the potato only as a protection against famine. Except for that, I know of nothing more eminently tasteless. Ouch. But luckily for the spud, by that point, the rest of the French nation was coming around. In the 25 years following the year without a summer, the French national potato crop quintupled in size. By 1850, the French were growing 10 million tons of potatoes on their tiny little strips. France now grew more potatoes than any other nation in continental Europe, and those potato fields fueled a population boom. An acre of potatoes yields nearly four times the calories as a field of wheat, with way more vitamins and minerals to boot. Suddenly, childhood mortality plummeted, birth rates went up, life expectancy increased. Nobody got scurvy anymore. A diet of milk and potatoes provided every single vitamin essential to the human diet. Introducing potatoes raised the average height of an adult French villager by half an inch. Plus, when France was suffering invasion and siege and social unrest in the late 19th century, the potatoes' underground growth process offered a huge advantage. Soldiers, thieves, and tax collectors couldn't see them growing, So, whether it was a group of Prussians or communards or Germans sweeping through your village, oh, they might make off with your wheat crops, but nobody was going to take the time to dig up your potato fields. Now, in the 1850s, when potato blight arrived, the French nation suffered tremendously. But they did have it a lot easier than Ireland, in part because the four-field rotation had ensured a diverse Bunch of backup crops. After the potato crops recovered, the French never suffered a full scale famine again. By 1920, French agriculture modernized at last. It took nothing less than a world war to do it. After the war, gone were the open fields, the tiny strips of land, and the threat of hunger. In its place, was a bunch of productive, stable fields, healthy livestock, and lots and lots of potatoes. Exactly 100 years after the year without a summer, in 1916, potatoes gave France a strategic wartime advantage. In Germany, which had then overtaken France to become the largest potato grower in the world, German potato crops were totally destroyed by blight and the copper, which would normally allow the Germans to save their nation's potato harvest, had all been confiscated for Germany's war effort. That year, hundreds of thousands of Germans starved and turned to another innovative root vegetable from the New World for survival. Today, Germans still refer to 1916 as the turnip winter. That year, hundreds of thousands of Germans starved and turned to another innovative root vegetable for survival. Today, Germans still refer to 1916 as the turnip winter. Meanwhile, the French army's rations mostly consisted of macaroni, rice, and, (laughs) you guessed it, potatoes. By the end of World War I, France produced 500 million bushels of potatoes each year. At some point during that war, American soldiers stationed in Francophone Belgium ate some potatoes fried in oil, and in a mix-up which refuses to die, the American soldiers named that treat French fries. So the French fry may not be French at all, but a deep affection for potatoes absolutely is. As the French finally came around on the potato, Antoine Parmentier's efforts did not go unnoticed. The French love their culinary heroes. Commuters taking line three of the Paris Metro can wait for their train at the Parmentier station, and they can pass the time reading extensive murals on the wall about the history of the potato. Finally, as anyone who has ever dined in a French bistro knows all too well, parmentier's name is now a byword of its own. Potage parmentier, salad parmentier. If you see parmentier on a menu, you know it's coming with spuds. Most famously, French shepherd's pie is known as achis parmentier. What better honor could a nation bestow than naming one of its greatest comfort foods after you? you can even eat your hachis parmentier on parmentier avenue and just how much of the parmentier dishes is france consuming well the average french adult eats a hundred and ten pounds of potatoes each year three hundred years ago antoine parmentier shook his head at the injustice done to his favorite root they have not escaped the shafts of calumny How many imaginary evils have been imputed to them! Today, Antoine Parmentier rests in Père Lachaise Cemetery, and the French pay tribute to him by covering his gravestone with potatoes. Thanks for listening to The Land of Desire. I'm pretty hungry so I'm gonna wrap things up and go eat some potatoes. But if you're thinking one French history podcast is not enough, may I recommend another? If you haven't listened to The Siècle, that show has a particularly great episode about the year without a summer. It's completely worth your time to listen. In the meantime, please say hello on Instagram or Twitter, And if you'd like to sign up for my monthly newsletter, you can do so at thelandofdesire.substack.com. Until next time, au revoir!